0: Hello and welcome, it is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia this chilly morning. It is cold across the state, actually. We had frost at our house this morning in Macon. Uh, It is, let's see, uh, 34 in Blue Ridge, 36 in Dalton, 37 in Clarksville and Carrollton. Rome is 36. Uh, It's in the mid-40s in Vidalia and Valdosta. It's just, it's chilly out there. 37 degrees in Athens, Georgia. Oh, yeah. Well, winter's finally here, I guess. Uh, maybe this is fall. The, the leaves are still falling. I sat out on the front porch last night. We got one of those big propane here. Man, that stuff cranks out heat. Uh, you're not here for that, though. You're here for the news of the day. Mike Bloomberg has gotten into the race. He intends to run for president of the United States. He's got his first ad up, which you can tell is a consultant-driven thing. Uh, now, I, I need to explain this. Um. Mike Bloomberg is the head of Bloomberg News. He invented a terminal that Wall Street uh, firms use uh, to to gather news. They get it. They can get it quicker than anyone else. They can get it about um, the stocks. They can get it about. News they can see headlines. Uh, Bloomberg ultimately got a, it built a news channel around this terminal where he can deliver uh, bleeding edge news as quickly as possible to people on the Wall Street to help shape the markets. And he became a billionaire with this invention. He is a a social liberal uh, authoritarian figure. When he was in New York, you'll recall he wanted to ban large drinks. He wanted to ban smoking. He wanted to. Uh, I mean, the the man essentially believes he can use government to bring about utopia and. bring about government to make you better. Well, a bunch of consultants convinced Mike Bloomberg after he won the he was mayor of New York three times. Remember, they didn't change the the term limits for Rudy Giuliani after 9/11, but Bloomberg insisted they change it for him. He served for three terms as New York City's mayor. He ran as a Republican the first time to bypass the um to bypass the Democratic primary uh, in New York City. Uh, He then ultimately ran as an independent. Uh, He is a a very liberal guy. uh, And the Democrats, of course, are now attacking him in a way they never attacked Tom Steyer. Tom Steyer was never a threat to them. But Bloomberg has a bunch of consultants, some of whom were connected to Hillary Clinton. He wants to run for president. You can tell his initial foray is a consultant package deal. And the reason is because it's a minute, 46 seconds. This matters because uh, Bloomberg is, um, well, Bloomberg is a consultant cash cow. And a minute 46 seconds is notable because... That's not something that's pared down to a commercial. See, if it's a minute, if it's two minutes, or if it's a minute, 30 seconds, you can subdivide that out and and easily package a commercial for TV or for radio. This is an Internet thing that he's pushed out as his announcement. I want to let you listen to Bloomberg, Mike Bloomberg, and why he's running for president.
1: Mike Bloomberg started as a middle-class kid who had to work his way through college, then built a business from a single room to a global entity, creating tens of thousands of good-paying jobs along the way. He could have stopped there. But when New York suffered the terrible tragedy of 9-11, he took charge, becoming a three-term mayor who brought a city back from the ashes and brought back jobs and hope with it creating tens of thousands of affordable housing units so families could have a decent place to live, raising teachers' salaries and kids' graduation rates, and creating a more open and livable city for the millions who call it home. He could have stopped there, but when he witnessed the terrible toll of gun violence, he put his money where his heart is, helping to create a movement to take on the NRA and the politicians they own to protect families across this country and help turn the tide funded college educations for thousands of deserving low-income and middle-class kids and supported life-saving medical research and stood up to the coal lobby and the outright denial of this administration to protect the only home we have from the growing menace of climate change. But now he sees a different kind of menace coming from Washington. So there's no stopping here because there's an America waiting to be rebuilt. Where everyone without health insurance is guaranteed to get it. And everyone who likes theirs can go ahead and keep it. Where the wealthy will pay more in taxes and the struggling middle class will get their fair share. And jobs that just allow you to get by will become jobs that let you get ahead. Mike Bloomberg for president. Jobs creator. Leader. Problem solver. It's going to take all three to build back a country.
0: Now. I want to walk through this ad again. You've heard it in full. I didn't want to take it out of context. I, I, I don't like to do that uh, where I just play small snippets so you, people can say, oh, you took the whole thing out of context. I, I want you to hear the full remark and or the full ad or the full whatever before I decide to have my way with it. And now I'm going to have my way with this ad. And I'm going to show you that this is a consultant-driven one-minute, 46-second effort. I will pause through it. Let's listen again. Mike
1: Bloomberg started as a middle-class kid who had to work his way through college.
0: There you go. He, he's, he's a self-made man. And built a business from a single room to a global entity. Creat- he's, he's a self-made man, just like the barons of Silicon Valley who started in garages. Tens of thousands of good-paying jobs. A job creator.
1: He could have stopped there. But when New York suffered the terrible tragedy of 9-11, he took charge, becoming a three-term mayor who brought a city from the ashes.
0: Oh, so he cares He cares about his community, and he decided to acquire political power to help New York after 9-11. See, he could have stopped there. He could have stopped with just the job creations, but no, no, not Mike Bloomberg, God among men. He needed to go forward. Let's keep playing. Brought back jobs and
1: hope. Jobs and hope. Creating tens of thousands of affordable housing units so families could have a decent place to live. Raising teachers' salaries and kids' graduation rates. And
0: now none of that stuff is the job of president mind you
1: creating a more open and
0: livable city for the millions who call it home open and livable city buzzwords listen to the buzzwords in this now we're at the buzzword portion i want i will highlight the buzzwords could have stopped there but the terrible toll of gun violence. He put his
1: money where his heart is.
0: His money where his heart is.
1: To create a movement to take on the
0: NRA. Take on the NRA. This is to get Democratic voters. Politicians they own. To pre- the politicians they own. So hey, let me just stop, stop right here. This is, first of all, this doesn't under, this, this it ceases, it plays into Democratic stereotypes about the NRA. But that's not really the way the NRA works. The reason the NRA has clout is because Tens of millions of people are members of the NRA. The NRA doesn't own politicians; their voters do. In the same way, Republican politicians are scared of Donald Trump's voters. Uh, Democratic and Republican politicians are scared of the NRA's voters. But he, so, if Bloomberg believes the NRA owns people, is it his presumption that he can own people? I mean, that that's there's a stark contrast here. He believes that the NRA can own. Politicians. So does he think with his billions he can own politicians? That seems to be it. But his money's where his heart is.
1: Families across this country and helped turn the tide. And he's funded college educations for thousands of deserving low-income and middle-class kids.
0: And so- Notice a- a- emphasis on middle-class, middle-class, middle-class.
1: ...forged life-saving medical research and stood up to the coal lobby and the outright denial of this administration
0: to- Oh, the coal lobby. So uh, you blue-collar, he's riding off Appalachia. The Rust Belt will not vote for Mike Bloomberg. Protect the only home we have
1: from the growing menace the of climate have. change. But now he sees a different kind of menace coming in Washington. So there's no stopping here.
0: There's no stopping here for this menace in Washington. Because there's an America waiting to be rebuilt. An America waiting to be rebuilt. I thought Donald Trump already made it great again.
1: Where everyone without health insurance is guaranteed to
0: get it. And everyone who likes
1: theirs can go ahead and keep it.
0: Listen to that one. Buzzwords. This is consultant speak. If you like it, you can keep it. Otherwise, we're going to give it to you. Where the wealthy will pay more in taxes. The wealthy will pay more in taxes. He's got to throw that one in there because he's a billionaire.
1: And the struggling middle class will get their fair share.
0: The middle class will get their fair share trying to co-opt Elizabeth Warren. And jobs that
1: just allow you to get by will become jobs that let you get ahead.
0: Ah, uh, yes. More, more consultants speak. Jobs where you can only get by, you'll be able to get ahead. Republicans were saying that about Obama. and Now the Democrats are saying that about Trump. Mike Bloomberg for president. Jobs creator jobs creator leader leader problem solver problem solver it's going to take all three to build back a country this is a focus grouped consultant Cash bonanza. Uh, Bloomberg is going to make a lot of consultants really, really, really rich running for president. Uh, I, I'm actually impressed. I mean, I got to give it to the guy. I'm I'm thoroughly impressed uh, with his rollout. He's getting all sorts of buzz that Tom Steyer never got. Makes you wonder why Tom Steyer is still in the race with Bloomberg in the race. You got two billionaires now running. Of course, Steyer's all about impeaching the president and Bloomberg is not. He just wants to beat him. Here's what's actually going on here. Uh, if Mike Bloomberg were to start a super PAC... Mike Bloomberg Super PAC would get uh, commercial rates on TV and radio. But because Mike Bloomberg is running for president, federal law requires that political candidates get the lowest ad rates possible. So Bloomberg, being a candidate, can run attack ad after attack ad after attack ad about Donald Trump uh, and get the lowest rate possible on TV and radio, something he couldn't if he just started a super PAC. Listen, the man's a billionaire for a reason. He's smart. He runs as a candidate. He gets the cheap ad rates where he can attack the president for the Democrats. And that might actually get him the nomination, too. You know, none of the candidates are really going on the full attack on Donald Trump right now. They're so busy trying to distinguish themselves. Bloomberg doesn't care. He just wants to beat up Donald Trump. So he comes out of the gate and and he does attack 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 on Donald Trump. Uh he may very well be able to help himself do that. That's it's not a bad strategy actually. Uh, if you just want to to beat up Donald Trump, if you want to uh, run for office on attacking Donald Trump and not have a platform of your own, although he's clearly taken the time to do this. And again, I'm I'm totally befuddled by Tom Steyer. Tom Steyer, the man with one Christmas tie who's running, is a billionaire as well. Tom Steyer has funded um, impeach the president campaigns around the country. He's poured money into uh, campaigns across the, the country to get Democrats elected. And he's gotten no traction, no-how, nowhere. Bloomberg comes in, but Bloomberg's got a problem. Bloomberg has announced he's going to self-fund his campaign. He's not going to accept political donations from people. And because he's not going to accept political donations from people, uh, he can't get on the Democratic debate stage. He can't get on the Democratic debate stage because the Democrats are required a minimum level of support from the grassroots. you got to have a certain number of donors to qualify. You have to hit polling and donors. Uh, um, what's her name? Uh, Tulsi Gabbard was able to hit... The donor and support level thresholds in the polling because Hillary Clinton attacked her. People poured money into Tulsi Gabbard's campaign to get her onto the November debate stage. And I think she will now be able to get on the uh, debate stage um, in December. And I'm not sure when that debate, where that debate will be, but she'll be able to get on it because of Hillary Clinton's attacks. Bloomberg can't get on the December debate stage because the December debate stage requires a certain amount of donors. And he's not taking donations. You go to his website, you're not going to find a donate button, so he... he he can't get on the stage. Now Tom Perez, who's the chairman of the Democratic Party, has decided that he will allow uh maybe a shakeup of the rules in January as we get closer to Iowa that might be able to help Bloomberg but they've got no incentive to have a billionaire on the stage. They're all thinking, you know, we're 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 good with the people we have here's a a quick montage of the reaction of the other candidates getting into the debate
2: we do not believe that billionaires have the right to buy elections that is why multi-billionaires like mister bloomberg are not going to get very far in this election Elections should not be for sale not to billionaires not to corporate executives we need to build a grassroots movement that's how democracy is supposed to work
3: money will not win this election connecting
0: with people will
2: you know listen we gotta get money out of politics let me just be honest with you i mean um i gotta raise a ton of money to be competitive and you know there's some people who started this race with
0: 10 million dollars yeah they're they're not very happy about this kamala harris in particular is really not happy about it bloomberg is suddenly stealing the last remaining vestiges of a spotlight she had Uh, None of them really like the idea of him getting in. They don't like the idea of him being surrounded with some of Hillary Clinton's uh, supporters as as consultants. They don't like the idea of him being able to drop money. What's so interesting here is that Tom Steyer got in and he didn't spend all the money he could have spent. Remember, I told you Tom Steyer would matter because he could spend a million dollars a week in Iowa and have success. And he's not doing that. Bloomberg, on the other hand, actually does look like he wants to spend a million dollars a week to get ahead in Iowa, although he's not going to play in Iowa. He's going to wait for Super Tuesday. Bloomberg is banking on the fact that we're going to have an an indecisive mess. Uh, uh, Biden is going to flail around in Iowa. Uh, Warren and Buttigieg are going to fight it out. You get to New Hampshire, Biden's actually doing okay, but Buttigieg has gone into the lead. In South Carolina, uh, Biden is dominant. Same in Nevada. Then you get into the Super Tuesday states. March 3rd, you got 10 states. Uh, where the Democrats look to play, and he's hoping, um, Bloomberg is hoping he can fracture that, and maybe he can. Oh, I have I've avoided it. I don't like it. It's overhyped. I don't believe it's real. But maybe his strategy is a <gasps> brokered convention. Let's explore that when we come back. It's Eric Erickson here. The phone number, 877 97 Eric, 877 973 7425 friend of mine just put up uh questions christian leaders at all levels should ask themselves when was the last time i apologized admitted error invested in someone who cannot advance me or my career was told i'm wrong cultivated accountability systems so the prior questions could be asked uh, dude i'm married this happens to me every single day <laughs> Oh, okay. All right. Uh, the 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 consultant-driven clash within the Democratic Party and Bloomberg running. Um, Tom Steyer has gotten nowhere, as I mentioned, even though he's a billionaire. And Bloomberg seems like he wants to advance and split it. By going into Super Tuesday, ignoring Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada – And then maybe having a brokered convention. Now, the media loves to talk about brokered conventions. Brokered conventions are where uh, the Democratic Party actually has an easier time having a brokered convention because of the rules of the Democratic Party with certain uh, supermajorities you have to have. And remember, uh, in the past, Democrats had super delegates, and the super delegates helped Hillary Clinton uh, ensure she would beat Bernie Sanders. There was no way really to stop her. In the same way, uh, you couldn't stop Barack Obama in 2008. Uh, the Democrats thought that the superdelegates would go for Hillary Clinton. They decided to go for Barack Obama. Uh, and he just had an insurmountable lead as a result. Uh, the The issue here is that um, you have to have more than just a regular majority. Of the, I think it's a two-thirds majority of the Democratic Party, and there are no superdelegates anymore because the Democratic base complained so much that it was antithetical to their uh, democratic processes within the Democratic Party. They largely got rid of the superdelegates. So every single time, and, and this is the where I wanted to go with this, every single time... Either party changes the rules to prevent previous problems. They create new problems. They they try to change rules to advance scenarios. The Republicans, you will recall, in 2016 changed their rules, and the changes in their rules actually made it very possible for Donald Trump to quickly uh, uh, consolidate his lead and become the Republican Party nominee. Because the Republicans after 2012 with Mitt Romney decided to change various delegate access rules that then ensured that Donald Trump could uh, lock up the delegates very quickly to become the nominee. The Democrats uh, after 2016 got rid of the superdelegates. And now what's happening? Uh, What's happening in the Democratic Party is that they can't consolidate around someone. Joe Biden is floundering. uh, Elizabeth Warren is now floundering. None of them like Pete Buttigieg, who has real problems. They got serious situations uh, on the Democratic side. And, you know, here's John King on CNN talking about the Biden issue. All a little
3: bit. He does not have the resources right now to compete with yeah, the Bloomberg. And,
0: and I think that's the that's the
3: Bloomberg play, right? And it's a gamble. But it also is a gamble that I think a lot of campaigns have been predicting or making for the better part of the last five or six months, that there's a softness to Joe Biden's numbers and he'll be exposed in Iowa or New Hampshire or some triumvirate of the first couple of states. And that will create an opening, whether it's for Pete Buttigieg or whether it's for other people. And Bloomberg sees himself in that lane. Look, to Mike's point, there's rich and then there's Bloomberg rich. He has the (laughs) money not to just do this for the next 10 weeks. He can do this through the election and it's just a drop in the bucket for him. I think the real question is twofold. To steal what you always talk about, this will be the baseline. Let's see what the numbers do after the $37 million ad buy plus. And then after that, let's keep an eye on Joe Biden to see how real this actually becomes in the weeks ahead.
0: Yeah, see how real this actually becomes. Joe Biden has been spending a lot of money to stay at the top. And it's worked thus far. The problem, though, is it's November twenty-fifth today, and the election doesn't. They don't even begin casting votes until February third in Iowa. So he's got to go all of December and all of January, and he's got to boost his fundraising. And in thus far, the signs are he isn't able to boost his fundraising, and that's just going to cause all sorts of problems uh, along the way for the Democrats because. Elizabeth Warren, more and more polling is showing she can't beat the president. Bernie Sanders polling, if you actually delve into it, the reason Bernie is doing better than Elizabeth Warren against uh, Donald Trump is because most voters actually don't think that he can even be the Democratic nominee. If he were the Democratic nominee, then suddenly uh, Bernie Sanders would have the Elizabeth Warren trouble and people know it. That leaves Biden and it leaves someone like Buttigieg and Buttigieg has a huge problem. Black voters are not fans of Pete Buttigieg, and we're starting to realize uh, along the way that this is going to be a problem for him. He's someone that white people like, and Bloomberg now comes in as the disruptive force to shake up the Democratic primary with his billions. It is 35 after the hour. I am Eric Erickson. This is The Eric Erickson Show. If you would like to be a part of the program... You can call the radio show by picking up your phone and dialing 877-97-ERICK, E-R-I-C-K. That's eight seven seven nine seven three seven four two five. 973 7425 Important notes for you. If you're on the recipe list at 1230 today, uh, you will get my gumbo recipe. I even did a video and the video is actually a couple of years and several pounds <laughs> ago. Um, I make gumbo with my Turkey leftovers and because you get tired of Turkey sandwiches. And after Thanksgiving, you got all this food left. What do you do with it? Well, I turn mine into gumbo and I'm from Louisiana before I could leave the state, my mother insisted I learned how to make gumbo and, and jambalaya and the like. And I will teach you with this video. It is a real-time, literally real-time video. I I, I nearly ran out of uh, space on, on the camera recorder. And it takes about 30 minutes to make a decent roux. And I walk you minute by minute, step by step through how to make a roux. It is not a hard thing. And you'll be able to do it, and you'll be able to turn your turkey leftovers into gumbo if you want gumbo. Um, It's not hard, folks. Um, Just watch the video. It'll come to you at 12.30 p.m. today. I already said it. It's ready to go out. If you would like to be part of the list, if you want to get on the email list, if you want to get the recipes text the word recipe to 33777 text recipe to 33777 you know people uh last friday i sent out that gravy recipe in the evening i had 2409 people 2409 people subscribe to the recipe list on friday it crashed my email server that's the only reason i know the numbers i couldn't figure out why the email server crashed and it turns out it was um i get a notice when people subscribe and i've got flooded uh, with email notices off that list. Um, so I hope you all enjoyed the gravy recipe. Several people sent me emails over the weekend with pictures where they had friends giving. What the hell is friends giving anyway? I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said it that way. What the heck is Friendsgiving? Apparently, you have your friends over the Saturday before Thanksgiving, and you do Thanksgiving. It's like trial run with your friends, so you don't give your family botulism. You give it to your friends. I, I'm not sure what this – I Now, I've got a buddy of mine in Washington. He's actually Marco Rubio's chief of staff. Great guy. Uh, my buddy, Mike, he has uh, half-giving. Now, what is half-giving? Well, uh, you take Thanksgiving, and you, you cut it in half from – a full year to a half a year so a half year out from thanksgiving in the spring he has half giving where that's his friends giving he invites all of his friends over halfway through cuz thanksgiving is his favorite holiday and he loves the food and and they do an entire thanksgiving with friends in the spring and and he was the original Uh, Doing this, And now other people, they want to do it. Why do you want to do it the Saturday before Thanksgiving? You've got so much food you've got to buy for Thanksgiving. You're going to do it all over again? No, actually, what you're going to do is you're going to go to your parents. So you and your friends get to hang out and drink boxed wine and and bad turkey and then go to your parents for the good one. And now people have it in their head, well, I'm going to hang out with my friends and we're going to talk about stuff that we want. And then we're going to sit around the table with our parents and we're not actually... (laughs) Shit be mocking this listen good for you if you want to learn to cook uh if you want to learn how to make gumbo text recipe to three three seven 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 we can move on to other things i guess we need to talk about chick-fil-a real quick i will only be brief uh in, in the chick-fil-a department I told you guys this was going to happen, that the charities, they abandoned the Salvation Army and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes for other groups. One of them is Covenant House. Uh, There are now some Catholic pro-life activists who have come forward, and they are accusing Covenant House of... Uh, driving at least one woman to get an abortion in an abortion clinic. Um, It is in a a Christian publication where they're making the allegation. I told you what was going to happen here. Chick-fil-A would come under renewed scrutiny and its new charitable endeavors would also come under scrutiny. Uh, It's also being attacked for being pro-LGBT, which, you know, I I don't have a problem with a group dedicated to homelessness being being pro-LGBT, but it is another attack from uh, the people who like Chick-fil-A and are upset with it abandoning the Salvation Army who are speculating that Chick-fil-A is throwing its lot in now with the gay rights activists who wouldn't pee on their chicken sandwich if it was on fire, and they're making friends of enemies by making enemies of friends. Uh, they've handled this so badly, and I really do believe that they just decided they could wait out the newsroom situation uh, with impeachment and everything else happening last week, and then hit it into Thanksgiving that everyone would forget it. Uh, I'm noticing a whole lot of people on the right are not forgetting or forgiving Chick-fil-A. You know, it's their money. They can do whatever they want to do. And um, it, it's if they want to spend it, they can spend it. If they don't want to spend it, they don't have to spend their money, but... But I, I just I'm I'm not sure that Chick fil A is making a wise decision in how they've handled this and they probably need to rethink, particularly the Salvation Army aspect of it. And now there's a rumor circulating online that uh Chick-fil-A is um, it's got an Obama advisor in charge of the foundation that's helping them steer through this. And now a lot of people are saying, aha, the left is taking over Chick-fil-A. I've actually heard from some Chick-fil-A franchise owners who are none too happy with the company right now over this. Now, uh, let's go to the phones, uh, Joe and Ella J. Welcome to the program, Joe. How are you?
2: Eric, I'm doing great. I just wanted to wish you great luck on your wonderful program and also wish you a happy Thanksgiving. I'm, uh, working hard to elect conservative Republicans like Marjorie Greene and Rich McCormick and, of course, uh, uh, Donald Trump and Steve Moore just called me. Steve and I are good friends, and he's working on some tax cuts. He was on Fox Business News, and uh, I, I think that we need we need to cut spending, Eric, and we need to cut waste. And most of our Republicans in Washington, as you know, are not doing that, so we <laughs> need some new truth. ones. But I do like the tax cuts, and I think we got a great economy. I'm a stock market guy, and my portfolio is really up, so I'm – I'm excited, but mainly I want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving and the best of luck with your great new program, my well, friend.
0: Joe, listen, thank you so much for calling in for listening up in L.A.J. You know, we meant to get up there and I was gonna give you a call going up there and we were going up there for our apple season and we wound up getting sick and we couldn't come up there. But man, I love well, LJ. Well have
2: lunch with me. Call me ahead and we'll get we'll have I'd love to take love to buy you lunch, my friend. I okay? will make it
0: happen. Thanks very much, Joe. Joe McCutcheon up there in LJ. Uh, nice to hear people listening up, up all over the state now. Man, I can't wait to tell you some of the, the news we have about the stations picking us up. We'll be spreading literally all across the state pretty soon. Uh, you can call in here, 877-973-7425, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425 is the number. Uh, the Navy Secretary, we'll move on from Chick-fil-A, the Navy Secretary has been fired, and there are competing reasons for why he's been fired. It's actually a weird story. The president, you will recall, got where I had a. Let me let me pull up. Where is the news article? Uh, yeah. Uh, Steve Steve Hayes over the Dispatch compiled this and and sent it along. Uh, so Eddie Gallagher is a Navy SEAL. He was charged with war crimes. Uh, he was ultimately found guilty of taking a photograph with the corpse of an ISIS prisoner. There were reports from people who worked with him that he had also shot at civilians in Iraq. The president, however, did not want him punished. Uh, he, the president, um, ordered him reinstated after a military tribunal. Uh, found him guilty and, and demoted him. Last week, several top Pentagon officials, including Richard Spencer, not the white supremacist, mind you, different Richard Spencer. Richard Spencer threatened to resign, allegedly. Spencer said that he did not threaten to resign. Uh, the The head of the SEALs, however, had no comment. On Sunday morning, the Associated Press reported the White House had given the Navy the go-ahead for Gallagher to undergo an official review. But by Sunday afternoon, the Pentagon announced that Mike Esper, the defense secretary, had asked Richard Spencer for his resignation. Esper and Trump provided divergent explanations. Now, Esper says it's uh, not because Spencer opposed Gallagher's reinstatement. It's because Richard Spencer went to the White House, uh, cut Esper out of the loop, and tried to propose a deal. Esper did not like that Spencer went around his back to the White House directly instead of going through the chain of command. Uh, The president, however, uh, insisted Gallagher needed to be permitted to retire as a SEAL and tweeted he wanted Spencer fired for several different reasons, including his displeasure over how Gallagher's trial was held and Spencer's apparent failure to address, quote, large cost overruns from past administrations' contracting procedures. It is actually a mess. Let me read you some of this from the dispatch. Prior to the events that made him nationally notorious, Gallagher was one of the Navy's most elite commandos, a special operations chief with five combat deployments with the SEALs and the recipient of several bronze stars. Late last year, he was arrested on charges of multiple war crimes. Members of his platoon testified he had stabbed a wounded ISIS prisoner to death and that he had on multiple occasions deliberately fired on civilians, including a young girl. In a bumpy, awkward trial, seven SEALs testified Gallagher had stabbed the incapacitated prisoner. Text messages showed Gallagher apparently bragging about the act of friends back home. Uh, Good story behind this, read one, got him with my hunting knife. Proceedings were muddied by several unusual moments. At one point, the military judge reprimanded the prosecution for interfering with the trial. At another, a prosecution eyewitness suddenly declared that while Gallagher had stabbed the prisoner, he himself is the one who killed the guy, and Gallagher should be allowed to go free. All the while, the defense maintained the jury should discount the testimony of the other SEALs as the grumbling of disgruntled subordinates. Ultimately, Gallagher was acquitted of murder and attempted murder and found guilty only of the lesser charge involving the photograph. He was sentenced to time served and demoted. It's the demotion that has caused the spat. Now, to understand what's at play here, you got to understand that the president uh, has a love for the SEALs and a disdain for bureaucracy and political correctness. So the president intervened in this and several other cases involving uh, accused or convicted war crimes. He tweeted out last month, we treat our boys to be killing machines, then prosecute them when they kill. He's pardoned three soldiers this year and stood accused of con- who stood accused of convicted murder, two of whom were released from prison. And he's followed the Gallagher case, which has been all over Fox News, I should add. Uh, the Gallagher case has been all over Fox. Uh, they've made him a, a uh, celebrity on Fox, and the president's been following it. And he ordered the Navy last month to restore his previous rank. Now, Richard Spencer, the Navy secretary, did not like this order. It came in a tweet, and he said he would not follow the order of a tweet. He wanted an order. Uh, The commander of the SEALs, Navy Special Warfare Commander Rear Admiral Colin Green also was opposed. There were reports that both threatened to resign over the weekend. Uh, Spencer wrote in his acknowledgment of termination letter, it wasn't a resignation, it was an acknowledgment that he had been fired, that he couldn't in good conscience carry out the president's order, and the president deserved military officials who would follow his command. Now, this is actually where it gets weird. Because Spencer is fired, he was ordered to resign, he essentially took it as a firing by the president, he said in an acknowledgement of his termination, and he said uh, he could not in good conscience follow the president's order, and the president needed someone who would follow orders. But Esper says that he forced out Spencer for trying to cut a behind-closed-door deal to bring the matter to a close in a way that would satisfy the president. So why would the president fire a guy who was going behind the secretary of defense's back to try to get a deal? The president would like, and why would Spencer put in his termination letter that the president deserved people in the military who could follow his orders and he could not follow his orders. None of it makes any sense when you think about it. I mean, just to put this in perspective again, The defense secretary claims that the secretary of the Navy, Richard Spencer, was fired because Richard Spencer reached out to the president directly behind the secretary of defense's back to cut a deal on the Eddie Gallagher case. The president says he fired Spencer because Spencer wouldn't do what the president wanted, among other things, and and budget issues. Spencer in his letter says he's fired because he couldn't comply with the president's order. That makes it sound like the president is the one telling the truth here and the defense secretary is not. Why is the defense secretary not telling the truth in this situation? It's a very convoluted story, but what it ultimately gets to is that someone is upset that Spencer wouldn't restore Gallagher's rank. And the whole thing is weird. So, yes, if Spencer went outside the chain of command, he should have been fired. And that's what uh, the defense secretary says, that he went outside the chain of command to get the president a deal the president liked. But Spencer, in his resignation letter, says that he couldn't get the president what he wanted and he needed to resign, it, it, none of this makes any sense. It, it, it's more befuddling that will confuse Washington and and let the pundits in Washington pontificate on, on what's happening in the Trump administration. But it should be troubling that there is this level of confusion with the resignation of the uh, Secretary of the Navy. Now, that being said, the president has already nominated someone to replace him. Uh, our ambassador to Norway – his name escapes me at the moment – but our ambassador to Norway – has been appointed to replace or will be uh, nominated to replace the Secretary of the Navy, who is now out as of Sunday evening. Uh, Within hours, by the way, this is the funniest part of this, is his resignation came within just a few hours of the Associated Press reporting that a deal had been struck, everything was A-OK, and he would not be going anywhere. Now the question remains, what's going to happen to the head of the SEALs? That guy supposedly is threatened to resign as well. And while Spencer came out and said the report wasn't true that he had threatened to resign, when the media reached out to the head of the SEALs, he refused to comment, which suggests he did try to or threatened to resign, and maybe he still will. I, a buddy of mine sent this along to me, and <laughs> I, I, I really totally need to to play this. Um, this is a guy, Tom Nichols, he's running for the state senate in South Carolina. The state senate in South Carolina. His name is Tom Nichols. This is three minutes. We're not going to listen to the whole thing, but you can get a flair for this. We, we, we've crossed over. We've reached a point in this country where, you know, I distinctly remember I was involved in politics at the time. We There would be people who would run for Congress essentially saying they've got George Bush's back uh, when it came to the war on terror and vote for them. They're Republican. Uh, but it was never s- aggressively pro-George Bush. Well, we we got the, the pro-Trump campaigns running around the country now of who's going to be the, the Trumpiest. Uh, you had Jeff Sessions the other day in Alabama. I didn't play this audio, but but listen to Jeff Sessions here from the other day trying to assure people that he will totally support the president. Well, that's a pretty strong uh, series of events.
4: Look, um, we had a disagreement over that. The president, and I did. I believe I did the thing that I was required to do. Uh, the matter has—he's uh, been cleared. It appears to me on the Russia matter, for which we are grateful after a very long effort. Uh, and this in- inspector general, which was there when I was there, that uh, he will complete an investigation internally. And I support pre- uh, Attorney General Barr's efforts to investigate uh, the predicate, the foundation that was laid to start this investigation back when I was an active participant with President Trump in the campaign. And so that's the right thing to do. I'm proud that the system is beginning to focus on that, and I'm confident that we'll get to the bottom of
0: it. At least I I hope so. He wants to totally support the president as best he can. He's going to be the, the the Trumpiest candidate in the race, according to him. And listen, if that's what it takes for him to get the nomination, that's fine. But we have definitely entered a brave new world of who has the president's back, uh, which is an indication of the, the political moment we're in. And now there's this Tom Nichols guy running for the state senate in South Carolina. Let's just listen to a, a minute of this three-minute ad. You see him in camo walking with his rifle. Got his, his, I'm plug straight here.
4: shooting Tom Nichols. I shoot straight when I take aim, and I shoot straight in who I am, too. I'm a God fearing, Trump loving, politically incorrect conservative. Along with God, country, and my family, there's something I also dearly love South Carolina. That's why I'm running for a state senate. I'm sick of professional politicians who claim to be conservative, but don't support President Trump. And I'm tired of rhinos who refuse to fight for the values we hold dear. Flip-floppers who say they want less government, but actually spend more and more of our money. Two-facers who claim they support the Second Amendment, but secretly try to disarm law-abiding citizens. And double-dealing hypocrites who say one thing here at home, vote the opposite way in Columbia. That's not me, I'm pro-Trump. Build the border wall, keep the economy growing, and above all, keep America
0: great. Now, I'm pausing right here because this makes a a great point going back to Bloomberg. Bloomberg did the minute 46 second ad. There's no way to cut up that ad the way he did it. There's no way to cut that up and do a minute ad. That was exactly where I stopped it. That was exactly one minute for Tom Nichols. That was exactly a one-minute ad. You could cut it there, and you would have your first ad. Now let's get into the second minute, and let's listen and see if the same thing works. We'll go another minute. I'm pro gun. If
4: you want to open carry or conceal carry, it's fine with me. The right to protect yourself and family is enshrined in the Constitution, and you shouldn't have to pay the government a fee to do it either. I'm pro-life. My faith teaches me the miracle of life is God's greatest blessing. That's why I believe life begins at conception and deserves our protection. And I'll stop out of control state spending dead in its tracks by introducing zero based budgeting. That's where each expense must be justified from scratch instead of feathering bureaucrats' nests year after year. My beliefs stem from who I am and how I was raised. Born in Alabama, my family moved to the Rock Hill area when I was five years old and it's been my home ever since dad is a world war ii veteran and worked at Bowwater. mom raised my two brothers and me i graduated from rock hill high school and the university of south carolina i met my wife barbara as an answered prayer out of the blue one day when her lost dog wandered into my yard <laughs>
0: nope can't really cut that second minute although there are points and, and, and breaks in there and his issues when you can <laughs> Met his wife when her when her lost dog wandered into his yard. Okay. Um. The, the the circle the wagons around Trump campaign stuff in, in a place like South Carolina can probably get you far in a swing district like, let's say, the 6th Congressional District here in Georgia. Probably not. Um, it, when uh, Joe McCutcheon called in, he mentioned Rich McCormick in the 7th Congressional District. Uh, the 7th Congressional District, you're going to have problems uh, rallying around the president there as well, although McCormick is a great guy. I, I support him as well. Uh, he's a good, good uh, guy, surgeon, who's running the 7th Congressional District here in Georgia. Speaking of Georgia, we've got to get into some of the Georgia news, including Joe Biden saying there are two Georgians on his short list for vice presidential picks. Yes, two Georgians on this list. You know one, can you guess the other? Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia, blue skies and chilly temperatures today. It's going to warm up a little bit, though. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877 97 eric 877-973-7425. Uh, definitely warming up, it was in the 30s earlier, it's 46 in Athens right now, 39 in Adairsville, 37 in Blue Ridge, 45 in Carrollton and Clarksville, Dalton's 43, Jasper's 45, Eastman's 48, Fidelion, Valdosta, uh, right around 50 degrees. Here in Macon, it is 45 degrees outside right now. It's going to be 63 today in Macon, at least. I got to put up Christmas decorations. Everybody in my neighborhood now has their Christmas decorations up, and, and I'm just not sure... Why? Uh, it's not even Thanksgiving yet, and I'm morally opposed. And Now, I'm one of those people, you should know, I believe in the 12 days of Christmas. The first day of Christmas is Christmas, uh, and it goes until January 6th. On January 5th, you turn your lights out because it's bad luck afterwards, but I was raised in South Louisiana. We take our 12 days of Christmas very seriously. You never, ever, ever take your Christmas decorations down until January 6th, and it drives my wife insane. But the first day of Christmas is December 20, 25th. That is not the last day of Christmas. Now, I will move on from my tirade. Joe Biden is floating two Georgians to be his potential vice presidential pick. It's not going to happen on either one. He was in Georgia, and so it was on his mind, although he waited until he got to Iowa to make the case. Uh, Stacey Abrams and Sally Yates, uh, the ex acting U S attorney general from Atlanta, man, uh, she has become just a, a resistance fan fiction hero. Sally Yates has, has she not, uh, for warning the vice president about Mike Flynn, getting Flynn fired and then getting booted by the president. Uh, he didn't name anybody specifically. Joe Biden said, but he said, um, I could start naming people, but the press will think that's who I picked. Uh, but uh, his list would include people like uh, the former assistant attorney general who got fired and the woman who should have been governor of Georgia and the two senators from the state of New Hampshire, Gene uh, Shaheen and, and Maggie Hassan. Um, yeah, we'll see. Um, Stacey Abrams is not going to be. Listen, I- again, um, I always feel bad. Well, I shouldn't say I feel bad, but just just so you know where I stand on Stacey Abrams, she and I, we disagree on everything in politics, but I interviewed everybody running for governor in 2018, everybody. I interviewed all the Democrats and all the Republicans, and she was one of the best interviews that I had. Uh, She and Brian Kemp actually were probably two of the best interviews I had uh, for the exact same reason. Both were very laid back. Uh, Abrams, in particular, she was at a conservative talk station with a conservative host who ideologically disagrees with her. And we actually had a very meaningful, good conversation about her life and background. There is a lot there to admire about Stacey Abrams, even if you disagree with her politics. And I know we're not supposed to say stuff like that these days. We're supposed to hate everybody on the other side. and They're all bad, but she's actually a very nice person. Uh, and we disagree on pretty much everything. Uh, We found some common ground in the need to help rural areas of the state. Um, But even there, we we had our differences. But I like politicians. Here's my rule of thumb, because I've been in politics for a while now. I know presidents. I've met prime ministers. I know senators. I know congressmen. I know lots of governors. And I find it most endearing when I meet someone in politics who can make a joke about themselves. Those are the politicians I like the most. The politicians who are willing to poke fun at themselves tend to be more authentic. And while I may disagree with Stacey Abrams on tons of stuff politically, Stacey Abrams will poke fun at herself. She can laugh at herself. And I like that. I know politicians, some of whom you know, some of whom you really like, and they cannot poke fun at themselves. Uh, And they're very sensitive to anyone poking fun at them. So when you find someone who's willing to, to take a crack on themselves, you know, that's a person who I think is more grounded in reality, even if I think their policies are bad or uh, they would ruin the state economically if they got elected. And I think Abrams would be bad, but the reality here with, with uh, Abrams and Biden is that Stacey Abrams never rose to more than the minority leader in the state house representatives in Georgia. And, while that may be a, a a resistance play, resistance fan fiction play for the Democrats, same with Sally Yates, who was just an acting U.S. attorney. She was a deputy U.S. attorney for a while, but they're not really, I mean, look at, let's see, look at Mike Pence. Mike Pence was uh, a member of Congress for a number of years and then governor of a state. In, Mitt Romney picked. Paul Ryan, who had been in the House of Representatives for a number of years, respected Republican leader Uh, when it came to the budget, whether you care for his policies or not. He had been in Washington for a number of years and had a deep background in public policy. Uh, Sarah Palin was a governor of a state. Joe Biden was one of the longest serving members of the Senate when Barack Obama picked him. Uh, Tim Kaine uh, had an impressive record in the Senate and Virginia politics. Uh, All had done things, had won statewide. Stacey Abrams ran one statewide race and lost. That's not really a qualification to be president. You you know, I will give you my theory on who the Democratic vice presidential pick will be. Um, And hang on, I got to get her name because I always forget her. Um, Michelle Grisham. Michelle Grisham is my guess for who would be a Democratic pick. Now, why? Uh, She is the 32nd governor of New Mexico. She served in the U.S. House of Representatives. She became the first Democratic woman elected governor of New Mexico. She became the first Democratic Latina elected state executive in the history of the United States. She was secretary of health for New Mexico She was a uh, Bernalillo County commissioner. She was elected defeating a uh, Republican for that House seat. She chaired the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. She won the Democratic governor of New Mexico and defeated Steve Pierce, the Republican who had also been a member of Congress. That is my guess that she makes a lot of sense. She makes a lot of sense to be uh, Vice President Biden's pick or anyone else's pick because the Hispanic-Latino vote in this country is way up for grabs between the parties. So you get the first elected statewide Hispanic female governor, and you make her the second or third, you make her the third female vice presidential nominee, the first female hispanic vice presidential nominee you galvanize hispanic support for the democrats that that just makes sense to me i mean both parties these days are obsessed with demographic politics that that would be perfect demographic politics the fact that she hasn't come up um i don't think is is meaningful in any way because we're still a long way from that process of vetting uh i do think though that saying something like Stacey abrams or sally yates it scratches the resistance itch of the democrats uh, without being very meaningful And I don't mean that disrespectfully, but uh, objectively, and I think Stacey Abrams would agree with this, uh, she has only been elected successfully to a state House seat in Georgia, and that's it. Uh, If Joe Biden were to keel over the day after becoming president, would that make you a qualified person to be president of the United States? Probably not. Probably not. And that's just the reality of it. But hey, Georgia's in the news uh, with Biden and his picks. Now, there's another... Issue in the news, and that continues to be. And this is a national news story, even though it is about Georgia. The three hundred thirteen thousand voter cancellations moving forward in the state of Georgia. Four percent of the state because they moved away or haven't participated in elections, um, 4% of the state's registered voters, not total population, 7.4 million registered voters, 313,000. Now, what you need to know again is that uh, the majority of these, over 184,000 of them, actually I think the last time I counted it was 210,000 of them, actually are people who move to a new district and have subsequently re-registered in a new location or they've moved out of state. So you're really only talking about 100,000 people that the state can't find. Those are people who haven't voted since the beginning of 2012. They did not vote in the presidential election of 2012. They did not vote in the gubernatorial election of 2014. They did not vote in the presidential election of 2016. They did not vote in the gubernatorial election of 2018. They have not voted in any municipal elections in between. Uh, it turns out of the 313,000 people who the state was going to disqualify for um, having not voted in seven years, 90 90 of them actually showed up and voted in uh, municipal elections this year. Uh, This is from the AJC. An analysis by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution of the list of voters who cast ballots this month found 90 registered numbers that match names of people who had been scheduled for cancellation. Voting is one way to protect the registrations. Election officials intend to remove 313,000 of the state's 7.4 million registered voters because they've moved away or haven't participated in elections in seven years. The Secretary of State's office has said the inactive voters probably relocated to another state, meaning they aren't eligible to vote. Critics of Georgia's use-it-or-lose-it law, which cancels infrequent voters every other year, says it jeopardizes the voting rights of residents because they haven't cast ballots recently. That's such garbage. The word recently interpreted by left-wing activists means seven years. These people have not voted in seven years. About 121,000 registrations are being canceled for inactivity since 2012 or earlier. The other 192,000 either uh, filed change of address forms or mail from elections officials was returned as undeliverable. Voter registrations can be canceled for inactivity after they failed to have any contact with elections officials for three years and then didn't participate in the next two general elections. Voters on the state's cancellation list were mailed notices. Their registrations won't be removed if they sign and return postage-paid postcard within 30 days. They can also just show up and vote or re-register. They make it really, really, really easy for you to keep up. You know, the befuddling hypocritical thing here of left wing activists who, who the reason that they're concerned with this is not because they think it's voter suppression is that they want to nurse grievances. They want black voters who overwhelmingly voted in record numbers in 2018 to believe that Brian Kemp suppressed their vote. By the way, polling shows that black voters in Georgia, Brian Kemp is growing on them. Over a third of black voters in the state now support Brian Kemp. He only got about 10 to 15 percent of their vote. So he's more than doubled his support of black voters in the state since 2018. He'll be able to be his own man in in 2022. But they nurse this grievance, the left does, because they really want you to believe their systematic suppression of the vote. But the reality is these people have not voted in seven years. And how easy is the state making it to stay registered? You get a prepaid envelope or prepaid postcards. You don't even have to stick it in an envelope. You tear off the card, you sign your name, and you stick it in the mailbox. It is prepaid. You don't have to put it in an envelope. You don't have to put a stamp on it. It's already taken care of. Or you call your local Board of Elections. The postcard helpfully has the number of the local Board of Elections. You just call them and say, hey, got the postcard. I still want to be on the voter list. Or unbelievably, inconceivably, you just show up and vote. That's it. 90 people showed up and voted and will not now have their voter registration canceled. 90 people out of 313,000 people. You know, many of these people probably got registered to vote when they signed up for their driver's license, and they don't want to vote. The past is a pretty good indicator of a voter's habit. Uh, The president's team and the Democrats are pouring massive amounts of money into getting people who are registered to vote and have never voted to come out and vote. And the reality is, they're not going to get many of those people. Most people who do not vote will not now vote. Most people who didn't vote in the last three presidential elections are not going to vote in this election. It's not worth the time of people. Now, it, because there's so much value put into, oh, civic participation, we all have to vote. No, actually, people are stupid. The The less voters, the better, in, in my opinion. Um, voters, they go and say, oh, I like this person. He's good looking. I'm going to vote for him. Or, oh, I like her dress. I guess I'm going to vote for her. People who, I, I, you know... I, the, the the idea that it is a civic good to have everyone turn out and vote, I think is wrong. And I, I'm sure people will criticize me for saying it, but no, you should not go vote if you don't know who the candidates are and what they stand for. If you're going because you think someone's good looking or you like their ad, but you know nothing about them, don't go vote educate yourself first. There's no reason for an uneducated person to show up and vote based on someone's tie color or dress color or, or they smiled on camera or or nonsense like that. And you would be amazed at the number of people who do that. It's like grade school kids who are asked to participate in an election. They know nothing about it other than who their parents complained about or praised at home. But then they say, Oh, my name's James. I'm going to vote for James. James. Please, let's stop with the idea that, that we should get as many voters as possible to go vote. No, we shouldn't. We should get as many informed and educated voters as possible to go vote, and preferably people who pay taxes should go vote uh, about their taxes. What do they want with their taxes? But the, the idea that that just everybody should go vote, and now we should have 16-year-olds, Andrew Yang, the Democratic candidate. He wants uh, 16-year-olds to vote. Why do you want a 16-year-old to vote? They can barely even drive. Because they know there's a democratic, there's a democratic, uh, demographic, democratic shift in voters. The younger you are, the voters don't pay taxes, and they think, oh, government's going to give me free stuff. I'll go vote for the Democrats. No, you should want people who pay taxes to vote, or people who have at least uh, attempted to pay taxes in the past. Maybe they're so old now they don't pay taxes. But you got an interest in this country, you should go vote. But the people who have no interest whatsoever, other than they're watching TV at night, they think, oh, She smiled. I'm going to go vote for her. (gasps) She likes Taylor Swift. I'm going to go vote for her. It just people are stupid. I'm not a big fan of the idea that everyone should vote. No, not everyone should vote. Some people should not vote. Why? Because they don't even know who they're voting for. They're just voting for, oh, top of the ballot. I'll vote for that guy. No, learn, educate yourself, get informed and then go vote. But don't just vote because people tell you you have to vote. Don't bow to peer pressure ever, including on voting. Learn and educate yourself first. Gumbo Recipe goes out at 1230 today. If you want on the list, text RECIPE to 33777. I did a video. It's actually a couple years old, uh, several pounds lighter, of me cooking gumbo. And where I actually did it in real time so that you could see for yourself how to make the roux. Uh, Basically, you stir nonstop. Flour and oil over medium heat for 30 to 40 minutes until it gets as dark as you want it. Uh, I actually like mine a little darker than I did in the video, but I didn't want to freak people out by getting them close to burning their roux. Uh, But, yeah, I turn my turkey into gumbo every year after Thanksgiving because you get tired of turkey sandwiches after a while. And so if you want to learn how to make gumbo, I make it easy for you. I got my, my personal recipe. Uh, so text recipe to three, three, seven, 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 and you can get it. I guess, you know, I've got a book out with a bunch of my favorite recipes, including this one in it. I, I should get a link for you on that. Speaking of Turkey. Did you know you can't hunt turkey? I mean, if you regularly hunt, you know you can't hunt turkeys right now. There are 250,000 birds in the state of Georgia by estimate, but state law forbids hunting them during this time of year. Turkey hunting is allowed only in the early spring, meaning if you want to eat them, you got to go put them in the freezer in the spring or go to your local Publix or Ingalls or, or Kroger. Um so what can you hunt right now? Uh, you know, I've never been hunting, and i got several friends who want to take me, and I actually want to go. Uh, I want to buy a, a new rifle. I've got an AR. I've got a Daniel Defense AR, but I want a, I want a fancy rifle, and I want camo, and I want to go sit in a deer stand and do nothing. Uh, where my phone doesn't work, i just got to sit there and wait for a deer. I, I actually think I would like to do that. Uh, but you can hunt deer, rabbit, raccoon, squirrel, and possum. i I got to tell you. If I were to bring home a possum or a squirrel for Thanksgiving dinner, I would probably be headed to divorce court the next day. Who does that? (laughs) Honey, (laughs) it was against the law to hunt a turkey. So I got us a possum that was in the backyard. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. This is from the, the city slickers at the AJC wrote this. You can do a squirrel, gopher. You want gopher? you can get a raccoon anybody want to eat her I'm going to gag just thinking about this one you want a raccoon for <laughs> honey there was foaming at the mouth let's eat this for Thanksgiving <laughs> Uh, deer would be more acceptable you can also um so you have unlimited crow you can kill as many crows as you want and eat crow if you like uh you can also do dove quail duck and geese but they have bag limits according to <laughs> jc i wouldn't mind doing a duck you know i i took a trip out west with some buddies um a couple of weeks ago, it was my, my Vegas weekend and we ate at a, it's the only Michelin star Chinese restaurant in the country. Uh, at wing Lei in the Wynn casino and we did the Peking duck table service and man, it was incredible. Uh, I, I have not had duck since I was a kid and forgot how much I liked duck. Um, but we'll do a Turkey at Thanksgiving. Uh, and you can do a Turkey too. If they don't, don't do a possum or a raccoon, please. <laughs> We don't actually know what the Pilgrims actually ate. Um, Some sources speculate they probably did uh, actually hunt uh, and get turkey, um, but probably more likely duck and geese. Turkeys, of course, are really, really, really hard to get in the wild. They've got great eyesight. According to this article, they can see you blink from 50 yards away and can remember which turkey calls and decoys are not the real deal. I got a friend of mine who loves to hunt turkey in the spring. Uh, There are... 250,000 in Georgia right now, there were 350,000 loss of habitat has caused the decline and other things that are causing decline that people aren't sure of, but you can always go to the grocery store to get your domesticated turkey to eat for the holidays. We will actually move on to other stuff when we come back. Again, 1230, the gumbo recipe for turning your turkey. It's actually a chicken sausage gumbo recipe, but I show you how you can do seafood or you can do your Thanksgiving leftovers. Breitbart.com is out attacking Kelly Loeffler, who is not the Senate nominee from Brian Kemp, but probably will be. He hasn't made the announcement yet. Um, she is being attacked by Breitbart for, she, she's being called a country club Republican and that uh, she is tied to Stacey Abrams. Now, interestingly enough, they they, they get this. What, this is so stupid. Um, so uh, Kelly Loeffler is in management with a WNBA team here in Atlanta. And Stacey Abrams joined the WNBA Players Union, which puts her on opposite sides of arguments from Kelly Loeffler. But somehow or another, there's a tie. The the other issue is that apparently Kelly Loeffler has ties to Planned Parenthood, but that's actually uh, the WNBA uh, gives a portion of ticket sales to six nonprofits. Planned Parenthood was one of them. Uh, and Loffler apparently was opposed to the decision to go with Planned Parenthood. You know, I'm going to pause from this issue and circle back to the Chick-fil-A issue. If you have not heard, if you were not here the first hour, Chick-fil-A is, um, it was attacked for supporting the Salvation Army by the left. It has now dropped the Salvation Army. One of the nonprofits it has decided to support now is called Covenant House, Covenant House is being attacked by some evangelicals for being pro-LGBT, apparently aggressively so, um, but it's real sin. There's a Christian publication out that says two Catholic pro-life activists saw Covenant House take a woman to get an abortion. Uh, And so Chick-fil-A, of course, now coming under scrutiny for Covenant House. What I find remarkable is how a group like the Salvation Army can be a pariah Despite the good work it does. And somehow all of these groups like the WNBA and the like uh, think nothing of giving charitable contributions to Planned Parenthood. And no one on the right has as much outrage uh, as people on the left do for uh, giving money to the Salvation Army. And Chick-fil-A, it appears, has gone woke. Uh, There I've seen so many people over the weekend on Facebook and and Twitter and the like circulating a story about an Obama advisor has now been retained by the Chick-fil-A Foundation to help oversee giving and say, now, that's why they're going woke. That's why they're going to the left. Chick-fil-A looks like it wants to uh, increase its friends among its enemies by making enemies of its friends and that they launched all of this in the run-up to Thanksgiving so people could forget it and let it go. But number of these Christian outlets out there, and, and I guess they'll say myself as, as well, but it, it is a new story uh, that I think is worth covering that uh, they're continuing to highlight the story. Now, no one's calling for a boycott of Chick-fil-A on the right. No, you don't have Christian activists out there saying we're going to stop eating a Chick-fil-A. But it is notable, I think, when an organization that has been defined by family values begins to abandon its family values stance to appease a bunch of people who wouldn't pee on its owners if they were on fire. Very much like I, I always thought it was crazy. Uh, Nathan Deal vetoing the religious liberty legislation in Georgia. Um, the the anti-religious liberty activists out there, the people who hate Christians, uh, they would not give Nathan Deal the time of day. They wouldn't pee on him if he were on fire. And yet he could constantly, while he was governor, wanted to make friends of his enemies by pissing off his base, and and he did it regularly um and and look i like governor deal i I thought he did a great job with school reform here in georgia but it was just crazy to me he would veto uh religious liberty legislation that the base clearly wanted and that he said he would sign uh only to placate the mob and chick-fil-a now looks like it wants to placate the mob and the mob's not only going to not be placated but conservative activists are now casting the spotlight and giving scrutiny to these new charities exactly as i told you would happen and the Chick-fil-A continues to ignore it and, and won't address people's concerns. I just, I'm I'm personally offended that Chick-fil-A would run away from the Salvation Army. It's their money. They can do with it as they will. Uh, if, if Chick-fil-A wanted to stop giving money to Charity Tomorrow, that's fine. They can give money to Planned Parenthood if they want. Now, I, I absolutely would not eat there if they gave money to Planned Parenthood, just like I wouldn't go to an WNBA game if they're giving money to Planned Parenthood. But it's just... It's, it's mind-numbing to me that Chick-fil-A, an organization that has prided itself on its wholesomeness, its its cultural conservative values and willing to withstand the, the tide, suddenly decides it's going to cave to the outrage mob. And it hasn't placated the outrage mob, but it certainly generated outrage on the other side. Now, all of that back to Brian Kim and Kelly Loeffler. I am, I, I'm I'm not amazed by it. It's what I've come to expect. Uh, the spin that is out that uh, the governor of Georgia has somehow made a mistake by doing this nominating process, keeping it dragged out and allowing a bunch of people to come forward and um, and speculate on who it could be. What the governor did was he did a transparent process where if you wanted to be the if you wanted to be the Senate appointment to replace Johnny Isaacson, you had to file a form saying you were interested and you had to give your resume. And over 500 people did a whole lot of nutters did uh, somebody in the governor's office told me uh, originally one of the reasons they did what they did was they could weed out immediately all the people that shouldn't uh, be the nominee and they could move on to the people who were credible and serious. Doug Collins applied. Uh, my friend uh, Jason and Avatarte applied, who I think should be the pick. Um, but I have no say in it. Kelly Lawler applied at the very end. The governor said he was going to close the deadline 5 p.m. on Monday, and Lawler threw hers in just after noon on Monday, and then the nominations closed, and it looked like oh, the fix is in. It's probably going to be her. Well, it wasn't necessarily. I am now told, and I have now talked to people. I, I haven't wanted to talk to anybody. I have just left it at speculation. I've now talked to people. And the word that I get from people is that uh, those close to the governor view Congressman Collins' actions as somewhat disqualifying now, Uh, that the making a big PR push for it in the way it's been done and bringing pressure on the governor is the one way to ensure the governor doesn't pick you. There is spin out there that is easily embraced by the uh, paragons of conventional wisdom in Washington and Atlanta. That the governor leaving the door open like this and having this nominations process, it was actually a mistake, that he should have done it behind closed doors. I think they're wrong. And this is not just me defending the governor on this uh, because I like the governor. I actually think what the governor did was smart. He forced a bunch of people who desperately coveted the seat to put up or shut up, and most of them shut up. They didn't do it that eliminated the governor's need to have to play the political angles that he would otherwise have to play. Like, for example, uh, Jeff Duncan, for example, or Chris Carr. Uh, I don't know whether they were interested or not, but there were a lot of people thinking, oh, it should be one of them. If they wanted it, they should get it. They didn't apply. So the governor, if he hadn't done this, would have to navigate that issue behind the scenes because neither of them applied. He did not have to engage in those behind the scenes processes that could be fraught with political peril for himself and those people. Uh, listen, it would not be good if, if Jeff Duncan did a pulled the Doug Collins and, and openly campaigned for it and did not get it. It would be a huge rift between him and the governor. Jeff Duncan played this very, very smart, uh, being happy with where he is, the governor being happy where he is. They've made a tremendous tag team across the state of Georgia. They've done a very good job working together. So now... Uh, we've got a situation where Doug Collins is openly campaigning for the job and that is rubbing people wrong, but, uh, several pundits out there in the national press and the local press are saying, all of this creates a power vacuum. The governor leaving this seat open too long, it allows people to campaign for it and puts the governor in a fraught position. You know what it does? It allows the governor because of the way, um, those around Doug Collins have managed this and people in the white house have managed this. It allows the governor to say, you know what? I'm my own man. And this is the relevant point of the people I have now talked to over the weekend, that uh, people close to the governor view this as a win for the governor, whether the president or, or people close to Doug Collins or anyone else likes it or not. Uh, The governor's team now views this as a win because it shows when the governor picks someone out of the box that the governor's his own man. He's willing to make his own mistakes. He's willing to make his own successes. He's willing to make his own picks. He's not going to be dictated to by Washington. And because this has gotten so much exposure in the media here in Georgia, it definitely shows that the governor is not beholden to the president. He thanks the president for his support. He thanks the governor for thanks the president for his endorsement. But he's not going to allow the president to dictate who the senator will be from Georgia. And I think they're right on this. I, I do. I think this makes Brian Kemp look like his own man. It makes Brian Kemp look like someone who can and will defy pressure, political pressure coming from the right to do the right thing. It also makes it look like Brian Kemp keeps his promises. Brian Kemp uh, is a governor who has wanted to be out of the box. He's wanted to make some non-conventional picks. Uh, I I, look, I think it's a great idea. And I think that it is a a win for the governor In that if he does pick someone on the box, let's say he picks Kelly Loeffler, the governor of Georgia will be sending the second woman from Georgia to the United States Senate. The first woman was also appointed for that role, uh, and now there will be a second woman, and she would also be on the ballot in 2022 with Brian Kemp. She would have time to establish herself in the same way Brian Kemp has had a time to establish himself in the governor's office. And I think there's a, I just think this, this has been a smart play by the governor by doing this, uh, the, the idea of a power vacuum and the idea of, let, let me, let me, if I sound like I'm hedging a little bit, it's because I'm trying not to be insulting to people. I like what the heck straight shooter time, huh? Conventional wisdom is a thing. Conventional wisdom is when the the pundits, the elite, the reporters, they sit in a room uh, and they they pick each other's brains and they arrive at consensus opinions that all scratches certain itches for them. And that conventional wisdom is then pontificated on in newspapers and editorialists, on websites, on social media, and even in the shaping of news on TV and radio. And the conventional wisdom that has come out of Washington, D.C. that is not sympathetic to Brian Kemp is that Brian Kemp has made a strategic mistake by doing this. And that conventional wisdom has trickled down into the local news as well. And you hear various political reporters and others suggesting this has all been a big mistake by the governor because it's dragged out the process. What exactly is the process is dragged out? It has caused the Democrats to see Matt Lieberman jump into the race when they were trying desperately to keep everyone out until there was a pick. Matt Lieberman is now doing fundraisers. He's now raising money for a Senate race where the Democrats were hoping to have someone notable. It has caused the media to highlight over and over the flaws with the current Democratic candidates against David Perdue and has helped David Perdue in that regard. It has allowed the media to highlight the lack of a bench in Georgia as the Democrats plumbed the depths trying to find someone because Stacey Abrams won't run. It has allowed the Republicans to get wind of the fact that uh, these people are, are looking at a handful of candidates and they want to run against the Republicans, so the Republicans have had time for opposition research, while the Democrats have not had time for opposition research on the Republicans because no one knew who the governor was going to pick I mean all the rumors circulating every single person I've talked to across the board has said no one has any idea we only now know that the governor is leaning towards Kelly Loeffler because of all the the kabuki theater from Washington DC over Doug Collins so now the Democrats have to rush out try to find opposition research on her and do some focus group polling on who best among the Democrats will go up against her but there's so much about her we don't know we don't even know she's actually the pick So much conventional wisdom in Washington and the Atlanta press corps among the political pundits and the like is premised on Brian Kemp not being a smart guy because they really liked Casey Cagle. And this has nothing to do with Casey Cagle, and no disrespect is intended to Casey Cagle, but the entire Atlanta political establishment were convinced that Casey Cagle was going to be the Republican nominee. The, the polls were aligned for Casey Cagle. The research was aligned for Casey Cagle. Uh, Stacey Abrams' entire campaign apparatus was built around the idea of Casey Cagle being the guy. And frankly, there were a lot of people in the in the Abrams camp who didn't think she could beat Cagle. And when it was Kemp, they were joyous and, and exuberant. When they got into the runoff, they were convinced Kemp would be totally vulnerable vulnerable and then look what happened but the entire conventional wisdom in washington and atlanta has routinely underestimated brian gimp And the entire conventional wisdom in Atlanta and Washington has routinely been packaged along the idea of when the governor goes out of the box and he does things different from his predecessors, that's somehow bad. It's not bad, it's just different. But it's different, and it's different in a way that these people don't expect. And it's different in a way that cuts them out of the loop. And that's the ultimate sin here for Brian Kemp, is that Brian Kemp has kept people out of the loop in Washington and Atlanta. He hasn't talked and been forthcoming to the National Republican Senatorial Committee. I know because these guys text me on a regular basis asking what I've heard. So they clearly haven't heard anything from Kemp. He's cut the White House out of the loop on this. I know because the White House staff emails me regularly and texts me asking what I've heard, which means the governor hasn't said anything to them. He, to some degree, I'm told, has cut David Perdue's team out of the loop. They have no idea. And he certainly cut the Atlanta Press Corps out of the loop. And that is an unforgivable, unpardonable sin. That in creating a transparent process where everyone could see who applied, they dared to suggest that maybe he would go behind the scenes and not actually keep his word or actually reopen it and find other people or go behind the scenes and encourage other people to apply. Meanwhile, the governor's just being the governor. He's doing what he said. He's keeping his promises. He's making some bold picks. I don't agree with all of his picks, but they're good picks. I mean, unquestionably qualified people. Kelly Loeffler would be a very interesting person. Now here is the problem for the governor, objectively so. The buzz, the rumor, the anticipation is that he will pick Kelly Loeffler. It's time to go on and make it official if it's her because the opposition research is going to mount, and if the governor drags this out further, and it is her, then he's going to allow people to do the opposition hits on Kelly Loeffler and define her negatively with the Republican base. That will mount a challenge against her if they don't think she's a strong pick. The sooner you get her out and let her define herself, the better it's going to be at this point. Yes, Thanksgiving is coming and people are tuned out, but if you don't make this rollout the Monday after Thanksgiving, there are going to be problems because you do have people thinking they'll mount a a challenge Remember, it's a jungle primary. You get five Republicans who want to challenge Kelly Loeffler. They're all on the ballot with her, along with all the Democrats who run. So you got to get her out there. You got to make her strong. You've got to get a bunch of money, and you've got to let her define herself before the other people do. The other thing that needs to happen on the Kelly Loeffler pick, and I can't stress this enough, is she needs to use Georgia consultants. There are a bunch of consultants in Washington D.C. who would love to make money off of this woman, and she better ignore every single one of them. Look at the people in the seventh congressional district who have outside Washington consultants coming in. What, what's what's the um. Who's the woman in the 7th Congressional District? She's the businesswoman. Uh, I could tell she wasn't going to gain any traction out of the gate because she hired a bunch of losing consultants from Washington, D.C. who are notorious for making money off of candidates without ever actually having those candidates win. If Lawler does something like that, that's going to spell trouble out of the gate. She should rely on, frankly, Governor Kemp's campaign team to get her through the Senate. And then in 2022, they can tag team together running for 2022. But she's got to get through 2020 first. This is pretty impressive. Uh, in fact I so uh, WRGA News in Rome I'm broadcast up there on WRGA 98.7 FM 1470 am. Uh, they've got the story from the Rome Police Department. K9 uh, handler Josh Glover and his partner K9 Ash have made numerous seizures of large quantities of drugs with a street value of over a million dollars. A million dollars. Ash is a Belgian Malinois and uh, celebrated his two-year anniversary. Uh, Ash was selected as a new department canine by Glover in 2017 and went through a 12-week training program. Now, get this. Get this. um, That's only one. There's also Lex, also a Belgian Malinois, uh, celebrated one-year anniversary. And he, they've seized over two million in illegal contraband using canines, uh, purchase and train with community contributions. combining uh, Lex, it's it just fascinating story. This one dog, um, Ash uh, seized a million dollars it looks like from the headlines. Uh, because of K9 ashes, consistent use. Twenty-nine pounds of illegal narcotics, including marijuana, methamphetamine, heroin, cocaine, and synthetic narcotics, have been removed from the Rome area streets. And then, uh, just this, the total loss to drug dealers is one million nine hundred ninety-two thousand five hundred ten dollars and sixty cents worth of cash and drugs. The street value of the drugs alone is one point nine million dollars. Uh, them using the the canines up there. Now, the, the important takeaway here is that these canines were purchased and trained using community contributions in the Rome area. Uh, which is fantastic. Floyd County, according to this, uh, WRGANews.com, is committed to helping reduce the number of overdose deaths in the community and decreasing crime related to gang drug activity, violence, theft, criminal street gangs. The county received um, HIDTA designation, high-intensity drug trafficking area designation this year, and will start receiving federal support. Now, think about that, by the way, that the Rome area, Uh, has um, been designated a high-intensity drug trafficking area. Marijuana, cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, ecstasy, Uh, really something else uh, happening up in the northwest part of Georgia. But these dogs, again, community contributions have helped to get these dogs $2 million in illegal contraband. Now, Ash is relatively new. You've got Lex and Ash or two of the dogs spotlighted here, two separate articles. Uh, Ash is relatively new as a police canine, um, but he's made a a substantial difference in the community. He's responsible for the apprehension of numerous suspects through the use of his dual-purpose training, which gives him the ability to track, search, and apprehend if needed. In addition to this, Ash earned a life-saving award for his ability to track and locate a missing female along with her infant during the late hours of the night. He's detected and seized over $1 million worth of illegal narcotics and $4,800 in cash during the current year. These values are determined by using the the high-intensity drug trafficking area standards. Uh, Because of his consistent use, this is the dog, the Belgian Malinois named Ash, 29 pounds of illegal narcotics. Uh, have been taken from the streets. Uh, God bless these dogs and the police officers who trained them. Uh, Josh Glover uh, is one of them who has been uh, trained, and Shay uh, Hovers is the partner for Lex, who have been conducting investigative stops and patrol duties with these dogs. Good for them, and, and good for WRGA, uh, highlighting uh, this effort. have been Floyd County, and it requires community assistance around the state to help get and train these dogs. They're just phenomenal companions for law enforcement. You know, it was a Belgian Malinois who, uh, what's his name? Baghdadi in, in, uh, the caves in, in Iraq. Uh, it was a Belgian Malinois that, that hunted him down and tracked him and got injured in the process. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. Thank you for joining me today. And actually great weather outside right now. I can see outside my window, blue skies. After all the rain on Saturday, I, I couldn't. All the people in my neighborhood putting up their Christmas decorations and it's pouring down rain on Saturday. Like, why are you people? You're all going to die of pneumonia. Then on Sunday, I started getting all my stuff up in the cold and wind, and I started thinking, mm, yeah, maybe death by pneumonia wouldn't be so bad. <laughs> uh, the phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877 97 Eric, 877 973 7425. I just want to. Um, I, I, I want to say that it takes me a while to decorate. I'm not quite, um, Clark Griswold, but I do put up a lot of lights and it drives my wife crazy because I keep them up until December 6th. Um, a, cause you know, I celebrate this, the 12 days of Christmas and they begin on December 25th. Uh, actually the night of uh, December 24th at sunset. And so at by sunset on January 5th, I have to turn the lights off um, and you celebrate Three Kings Day and then you start uh, gumbo Mardi Gras season. Mardi Gras season starts January 6th with Epiphany. Um, that's just the way the calendar works. Don't blame me, blame God. <laughs> okay, now um, I was going to get into the impeachment stuff and I will get into the impeachment stuff, but I've decided, I've made an executive decision. I'll get into the impeachment stuff, but first... I want to talk about the Rick Perry stuff because the Rick Perry stuff comes on the heels of the Franklin Graham, um, what's his name? Eric Metaxas stuff. Eric Metaxas and Franklin Graham had a conversation the other day. Eric Metaxas is a, um, he's a biographer, he's a writer. He did a great biography of Bonhoeffer and he kind of beclowned himself, I think, in 2016 with some of his uh, rabid Trumps. Listen, you, you write a book on on Dietrich Bonhoeffer and then you start attacking people who don't want to support the president because of his his character and the like. And I, I find that uh, beclowning. Uh, whether you support the president or not, if you can't acknowledge the man has some deep character flaws, uh, we got problems uh, because he does. Uh, and I, I do think that you will find Christians uh, rallying to Donald Trump again. A, a three, uh, three times married, multiply divorced man who's had affairs with porn stars because he may have had affairs with porn stars and and committed adultery serially and not really know who two Corinthians are, but he's not out to get the Christian faith. And I get that. I totally get that. Uh, The left is coming for you, so you might as well stand with Donald Trump. But this idea that you need a strong man in the White House to protect Christianity when you have the God of all creation protecting Christianity is, is anathema to me. It's a silly, silly idea of American Christianity that somehow we're all victims when the God of the universe stands with us. But uh, that spilled over. The the Franklin Graham-Eric Metaxas conversation involved uh, Franklin Graham saying the constant opposition to President Trump is almost demonic. And uh, Eric Metaxas jumps in and says, no, I I disagree. It is all spiritual warfare. And and then they went into how the economy is good and so Christians can give more to churches and on and on. and, And God's involved in all of this. You know, God was involved in... God was involved in picking Barack Obama as well. Romans 13 says God puts our leaders in positions of power. He raises up our leaders. Now, you may plant your footsteps, but God sets the path. Uh, and Rick Perry essentially took that on on Fox News this weekend, but it, it's kind of actually a, a big issue. And Fox has essentially said that God himself ordained Donald Trump, and he's Doing God's will and all, they they blew up what Rick Perry said out of proportion. I want to play you what Perry actually said on Fox.
4: God's used uh, imperfect people all through history. King David wasn't perfect. Uh, Saul wasn't perfect. Solomon wasn't perfect. Uh, and I actually gave the president uh, a little one pager on those Old Testament kings about a month ago, hmm. and I shared it with him. I said, "Mr. President, I know there are people that say, you know, you you said you were the chosen one, uh, and and I, I said you were." I said, if if you're a believing Christian, you understand God's plan uh, for the people who uh, rule and 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 judge over us on on this planet in our in our government.
3: Unless people on the left attack Rick Perry, he pointed out to me he believes Barack Obama was sent by God as well. He said for that moment and that time, he said he thinks for this moment and this time, Donald Trump was sent by God to do great things.
0: Well, you know, God also sends the locusts and the plagues and turns rivers into blood. So we don't know the thinking of God, but we do know that uh, he sends our leaders. In fact, if you look at Romans 13, uh, let me just read this for you. ESV, of course, that's the way God wrote it. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer." Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed the, to them taxes to whom taxes are owed revenue to whom revenue is owed respect for whom respect is owed honored for whom honor is owed. Now, of course, uh, progressive Christians and atheists point this out and say, well, then why aren't you supporting abortion? Uh, why don't you want to fund abortions? Why are you hobby lobby, little sisters of the poor, or whoever fighting the government? When, uh, your scripture says the government's appointed by God and they're doing God's will. Well, because we, also know from Scripture that there are times that uh, the governing authorities come into conflict with God's law, and God's law reigns supreme. Uh, God puts people in charge. He may put them there to to support you. He may put them there to test you. And there are a lot of people, a lot of evangelical Christians, who look at Donald Trump as being put there to protect them. But there are other evangelicals who look at Donald Trump as being there to test you, to, to see how faithful you are. Uh, it it, it is honestly, let me just have a moment of candor. That's going to make some of y'all mad here. It is appalling to me to see some prominent evangelicals in this country who will go on TV and defend everything the president does. When there are some things the president does that you don't need to defend. There are people who will deny, uh, until they're blue in the face that the president cheated on his pregnant wife with a porn star. When it is objectively certifiably true that he did. And that's not conduct that needs to be praised, and nor is it conduct that needs to be excused. This is a president who is a sinner like the rest of us. Uh, this is a president who you will recall in the general election in 2016 was praising Planned Parenthood for the good things it does. Yes, he absolutely did. And you had certain evangelical pastors supporting the president come out and say, oh, yeah, Planned Parenthood does great work. Other than that abortion stuff, that they do great work, and all that stuff should be funded. They just can't be funded with abortion. So why are you praising Planned Parenthood? ministers of the gospel, it, it, it's been deeply frustrating. But at the same time, let's also be clear, there are a lot of atheists out there who don't understand Christian scripture um, and they they quote it selectively, throwing it in people's faces. Pete Buttigieg is doing that with... with um, certain passages of Scripture where he says it's all nebulous, but he feels free to selectively quote the things he likes that he thinks can be used against actual Christians um, when he's running for office as an Episcopalian. But at the same time, you know, Scripture is pretty clear, and Rick Perry is pretty clear, that all leaders come about because God wants them there. That includes Barack Obama, and that includes Donald Trump. Some of the most—some of the anger that I've gotten, some of the most angry responses I've gotten— On social media in the past, from conservatives, have been to point out to them that scripture commands you to pray for Barack Obama when he was president because all leaders are appointed by God. What I find more notable, and the reason I wanted to to get to this, and we will get to impeachment, there's a lot to talk about an impeachment, but I I keep trying to put it off in large part uh, because I'm tired of the subject and I don't know that it's going to go anywhere. But what I find notable these days is how many people on the left. And many secularists don't actually understand the basics of Christianity anymore. I've told you guys this in the past. Uh, it was Camille Paglia, who she's the art history professor, a lesbian. Uh, now, I guess she says she's transgender. I don't know. Um, but she's, she's rather conservative in her views, or libertarian at least. And she's told the story in the past of how her incoming college students at the, at the school she teaches at in Philadelphia, she shows them a painting. It is the painting of an older man with a long beard, with a staff in the air, and before him water is parting. And there are a crowd of people before the water as the water parts. It is very clearly a picture, a painting of Moses parting the Red Sea. And she noted that in her college, her, her college she has a large number of young people from well-to-do families, uh, secularists coming to her school. And over the years the number of kids in her art history class who can identify that picture as Moses part of the Red Sea has been in decline. Every year, there are fewer and fewer kids in her class who recognize that as Moses part of the Red Sea. And she raised this point several years ago now. In fact, I can't even find it online anymore, but I remember the conversation. Um, but she raised the point at the time that uh, it, it is a... a We used to speak in a common tongue in this country, and many of the motifs we would weave with our tongue and many of our common idiomatic expressions involved uh, biblical phrasing, Uh, parting the Red Sea, things like that, Uh, our cross to bear, biting an apple, uh, forbidden fruit, all the little idiomatic expressions uh, that were premised on an understanding of biblical scripture. And now increasingly in this country, we have people who don't recognize the biblical language. They hear the biblical language and and they're befuddled by it. They're offended by it. People offended by Rick Perry for saying what he said, uh, making clear, by the way, he said what he said about Barack Obama as well, that God picture leaders. It's in the Bible. And it's amazing to me, even on the right people who they misinterpreted this, people are like, man, I can't believe he said that. He's saying God put Donald Trump in his position. Yes, actually, yes. But you know what? Here's the irony. If it was Hillary Clinton, he would have put Hillary Clinton in her position too. It's the way it works. It's what the Bible says. And you're supposed to pray for them. Now, just as as an aside here, to put this in context, uh, Peter himself, the apostle Peter, also said to pray for your leaders, to pray for the emperor. This was the emperor who was going to crucify Peter upside down, who was persecuting Christians and using them to light the streets, literally using their bodies as lampposts to light the streets of Rome, which were notoriously windy, dark, and covered in thieves at night. He would use the Christian bodies in flames, crucified along the way, to light the streets of Rome at night. This is Paul, who himself would be executed, having his head severed from his body, saying that the governing authorities are there because God wants them there. And Christians who have gotten so worldly and have worked themselves into a frenzy over politics need to remember that Barack Obama was as much God's chosen as Donald Trump is, and you can view Donald Trump as God putting him there to protect. Uh, it, the The number of Christians I know who buy into the Cyrus stuff that that he's the, the he's the the pagan Persian king Cyrus restoring the temple. We were never a Christian nation. I, I don't mean to to shake you by telling you this but did we have a bunch of christians forming the nation yes were we explicitly christian not exactly not exactly and i know there are people who believe that i i I don't subscribe to it uh i have a degree in history and, and my specialty was early american history and i don't see the evidence for what some people see but i can tell you god's got a plan And whether this country stays or falls, whether it's permanent or not, and it's not, nothing is in this world, God's got a plan. And his plan right now is for Donald Trump to be president. And if Donald Trump loses in 2020, well, that's all part of God's plan too. And you got to pray for your leader one way or the other. And what Rick Perry said isn't wrong. It isn't outrageous. And what is outrageous is so many people heard it and got offended by him saying it. People who should have known better. I saw people online hearing him say, oh, he's one of those now. I'm never supporting Rick Perry again. Why? Why? Because you heard him out of context. Fox News, by the way, has been blasting his quote completely out of context from his entire interview where he says God puts leaders in place. He put Donald Trump in place. He put Barack Obama in place. Everybody wants to hear what they want to hear. They don't want to hear what was actually said, and they completely forget the context. And that is the most maddening part of our world today, particularly driven by social media, the selective contexting. You know, one of the criticisms I've gotten thus far of this program is that some of the sound bites I play are too long. We try to keep them all under two minutes because of copyright and everything else. But I never want you to accuse me of taking people out of context. And so I always try to play the context, the the remarks around the primary context that I want or the primary remark that I want so that you hear it fully in context. And less and less do people in the media do that. They want the gotcha soundbite. They don't want the full context of it. And it's increasingly getting people in trouble. And frankly, it's increasingly making people not trust the news. And I would much rather you guys understand the entire context and point to make it, you realize I'm not trying to pull the wool over your eye and have people say things they really didn't mean. Random aside here, you know, I, I mentioned that uh, that God uses leaders sometimes for good, sometimes for not, but he puts leaders in charge. He, he brings plagues and locusts and, and rivers of blood as well. I, I had totally forgot uh, the things you learn in seminary and you forget that um, the, the Exodus plagues, I was listening to a Bible Project podcast the other day on how the Exodus plagues mirror creation, uh, which I find very fascinating. If if you take the order of the the plagues of Egypt, they very much mirror the seven days of creation. Um, for example, the first the the river turns to blood. One of the first things God does is he. Uh, separates the waters from the dry land, and then you have the the locusts and the flies and the frogs and the frogs coming out of the water, and on and on it goes. It's just absolutely fascinating, the the reverse order of stuff, and ultimately you get to uh, darkness covering the land, God taking away light, and then you get to... The death of the people, mirroring the creation of the people, the parallels there are fascinating. So I've been listening to the Bible Project has this entire uh, series right now on seven in the Bible. And so, for example, the first sentence of the first, the first verse of the Bible is in Hebrew, seven words. Um and it, it's just I mean the the parallels there are staggering there are seven days there are seven words uh, God gives ten commands in Genesis one he gives ten commands in the Ten Commandments he gives ten commands uh, as he issues the plagues um, it just it's it's really the the level of um, literary thought that went into the formation of the first books of the Bible thousands of years ago. Uh, was amazing. And, and I'm one of those who subscribes to the camp that Moses uh, wrote it and uh, that it is is God-breathed, and I'm just staggered to learn stuff that we never even went in depth on a lot of the stuff in the seminary. And, and how many the, the pattern of se- – I mean, obviously, seven is significant because uh, it is the complete number. It is the seventh day God rested. It is the Sabbath. It's woven into so much stuff. Um, but all of it together is just really incredible stuff. Um, makes you appreciate the the rich literary heritage of scripture and I guess I need to get on with my Hebrew in in seminary because I I haven't done it and I've been listening to these Bible scholars who know Hebrew and I'm just incredibly amazed constantly uh, with all the information they have now I should move on to other things we do need to get into impeachment whether we want to get into impeachment or not um, but, you know, before I get there, the Indonesian seas are turning red. Speaking of, of the Nile and turning it to blood. <laughs> um, so, uh, yes, the, the ocean or the sea around Indonesia is turning red. And do you know why it's turning red? Because of your Tesla. The growing appetite for electric vehicles is creating new demand for nickel, whose chemical derivatives are increasingly used in cathodes of lithium-ion batteries, but the push for clean energy is coming at an environmental cost to forests and fisheries in one of the world's most biodiverse regions. Shaman uh, does not—this is a guy who lives in Indonesia— uh, does not know how much more his fishing village can handle in the decades of meeting iron nickel for steel demand the seas have turned red, marine life has left past the horizon and the exhaust of smelters has triggered respiratory problems. This is you know I, I if you've listened to this program since we started in in mid-August I've been saying this was a day of reckoning it would eventually come. That for all of the, the talk of green energy and batteries and electric-driven cars, there is a cost elsewhere on the planet for the nickel and the lithium and, and the chemicals needed to make the batteries and, and everything else that comes with the cost of making an electric car. And it is completely forgotten by so many people. But it's a real issue. It is a real issue to the environmental cost, the trade-offs. You know, likewise... If everybody were to switch to an electric vehicle tomorrow, just just as a thought experiment, all of us gave up our fossil fuel-based cars tomorrow in favor of electric cars. Think about the strain on the power grid. Yes, there would have to be new power plants built, and guess what? They'd probably be nuclear. Solar and wind wouldn't be able to keep up. And yes, you would stop burning as many fossil fuels, but would you have an increase in coal for power plants? And what about the environmental costs elsewhere? And that's part of the problem with the environmentalist movement. The environmentalist movement is being so led by a bunch of white people from the United States and Europe, they totally ignore the costs in third world countries to their environmental activities of of harvesting the minerals for their batteries and, and their wind farms and things like that. Uh, there actually is a cost to be born in the third world. And frankly, there's a cost to be born in keeping the third world from having air conditioning and stuff like that as well uh, and, and not allowing them to kill mosquitoes to cure malaria but it makes white people sleep well at night in these rich countries. Well, I can't get to impeachment because there's breaking news. (laughs) It's not actually breaking news. It's a story from two years ago that for some reason is recirculating today. (laughs) Oh, these people. Progressives. Oh, God bless them. Here's the headline. America's Wholesome Square Dancing Tradition is a tool of white supremacy (laughs) someone actually wrote this story if you live in the united states chances are high that growing up you had to take square dancing in gym class i myself spent a week at my rochester new york high school learning to alimony left and right skills i was highly unlikely to ever need again like man at the time, although I thought it was odd, I was merely grateful for not having to change into my gym clothes. As it turns out, there's an unusual reason why so many American students spend their formative years learning to do do 28 out of 50 states have declared square dancing their official dance. It is part of a coordinated campaign, a danspiracy, if you will, to make square dancing the official dance of the United States in the hope that doing so, quote, would give square dancing and its related activities more visibility and have a positive effect on recruiting new dancers. But the institutionalization of square dancing isn't just about the joy of dance. It's also about America's legacy of racism and anti-Semitism and the surprising tools that get used in the effort to uphold WHITENESS. Y'all, I wish I were making this up. To understand how square dancing became a state mandated means of celebrating Americana, it's necessary to go back to Henry Ford, the founder of Ford Motor Vehicles. He hated jazz, he hated the Charleston, he really hated Jewish people and believed the Jews had invented jazz as part of a nefarious plot to corrupt the masses and take over the world. <laughs> It's actually true. He didn't think that, but still. Ford hired black workers and paid them the same as his white workers, but he was also very concerned that they, along with his other workers, would be morally corrupted by the evil influences of jazz. Jazz would lead them astray, propelling them towards liquor, tobacco, sex, and all sorts of other sins. Ford and his wife had long had an interest in what he termed old-fashioned dancing. When he brought bought the Wayside Inn in Susbury, Massachusetts in 1923, he hired a man named Benjamin Lovett to not only teach square dancing to him and his wife, but also to guests. At the time, the dance form was already seen as old-fashioned and, well, square. Even in the country where these kinds of dances had once been popular, jazz and swing were taking over. By bringing back square dancing as well as other primarily Anglo-Saxon dances like waltzes, Ford believed he'd be able to counteract what he saw as the unwholesome influence of jazz on America. Oh my goodness gracious. People, he imagined, would leave dance halls and cabarets and droves to swing their partners round and round at liquor-free square dance clubs. If jazz was the cause of America's moral decay, the road to repair it could be as simple as replacing it with fiddles and square dances. Now, there really isn't a ton of evidence for this, but... This person wrote, gosh, a thousand-plus words on square dancing. <sighs> and the ultimate conclusion is this. There's nothing inherently wrong with square dancing, but there is something wrong with declaring it to be more valuable than any other form of dance. I agree. The ballet... I'm, <laughs> Lord the things people work themselves up about. Seriously, speaking of working people up, impeachment is working up a lot of people, all sorts of people distressed, all, all sorts of people wondering why. Uh, CNN's, uh, what is it, Anna Cabrera talking to one of the Democratic members of Congress wondering, have you done enough because they've closed down the public impeachment? It's going to move to the Judiciary Committee next.
3: John, you said during the testimony even a week ago or so that Democrats had already had more than they had against Richard Nixon to impeach him, and you've said something similar here this evening, and yet we keep watching learning more. Just like this bombshell Washington Post reporting, it doesn't feel like the investigation is complete. Is it too soon to vote and hand this over to Senate Republicans?
0: Is it too soon to vote? It doesn't feel like it's complete, does it? It feels like they should do something. But, you know, among the the unusual people um, criticizing this, Heidi Heitkamp, who is a Democrat. She was a Democratic senator from South Dakota. One
1: thing, warning sign for Democrats this weekend. It's just one warning sign. I want to put it up on the screen and bring this to you, Heidi Heitkamp, this Marquette University poll out of Wisconsin for the first time showing this is a flip from the summer and from the early fall, showing President Trump in that key state of Wisconsin, beating every single major Democrat.
2: Yeah, I think that Marquette is the real deal, and I think they better start paying attention. And it goes back to how broad is your message? How much are you reaching out? How much are you making it about the people who you want to serve? And one of the problems that we have is we're now in impeachment land and there's very little discussion about what's going to change for people in in the real world and impeachment itself is not a discussion about what does this mean for me, it just seems more of Washington dysfunction, more of what um, the rancor that people absolutely hate. But you heard what Senator
1: Klobuchar just said there, that may be but the Democrats have a duty if they see this evidence of what they consider an impeachable offense, okay. they but, have to go but, forward. But
2: the problem that they have is that they fail to make it about the people. They keep making it about Donald Trump. The people know, they've made the judgment that this person is probably not a very moral person, not a very competent person. But quit making it about Trump and start
0: making it about the George, people. George the- yep, listen. This is from Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair is not exactly sympathetic to the president. Uh, They run all sorts of fan fiction about the president of the White House. Data exclusive to Vanity Fair shows impeachment could be a losing issue for Democrats hoping to recruit independents in 2020. Lots of people who don't like Trump who are still prepared to vote for him, said one political science expert. It was a brief shining moment for congressional Democrats. As details of Trump's Ukrainian phone call spilled out, and as House Democrats... Revved the impeachment engine. Early polls evidenced strong support for removing Donald Trump from office. Though much of that support came from Democrats, critically it also came from independents. A late October Gallup poll put independents in favor of removing Trump from office at 53% to 44%, and a morning consult poll in early November revealed that even greater gap, 49 to 40 to 34, in favor of removal. That early enthusiasm represented a potential bonanza for the Democrats, albeit a surprising one, independents tend to be more moderate and pay less attention to news breaks in politics and are an unlikely group to suddenly surge in support of a precipitous step like impeachment. Independents are also one of the keys, if not the key, to the 2020 election. According to Gallup, self-identified independents make up 40% of the electorate. Many of these voters are closet partisans, reliably voting for one party or another, but enough of them, call it somewhere between 10 and 20%, are the true persuadables or movables whose votes are up for grabs. Alas for the Democrats, the promising numbers of late October and early November rapidly dissipated, and polling numbers have reverted to a level more consistent with long-term opinions on President Trump. In the latest political morning consult poll released on November 19th, independents opposed impeachment and removal 46 to 39, a number close to the rolling averages of the last few weeks. It's notable the poll was fielded after the public impeachment hearings began. Even the compelling testimony of witnesses like Marie Yovanovitch, the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, failed to move the needle on public opinion. That doesn't mean further hearings won't energize greater opposition, but it's a little hard to imagine more effective testimony than that offered by Ivanovich and some of her Foreign Service colleagues. To understand the relative lack of enthusiasm among independents for impeachment, I took a close look, this is the writer, took a close look at data from the most recent political morning consult tracking poll, a poll in which the Hive had the opportunity, that's the Vanity Fair political wing, had the opportunity to propose questions focused on independents and their views. Well, there's a problem. Three important factors driving the views of independence. The first is impeachment distracts from the issues they care about. The second factor is the view among independents that impeachment reflects the agenda of the political establishment and media. And third, independents are suffering from scandal fatigue and overall confusion. It's not working for the Democrats. I mean, for this to come in Vanity Fair, which has been part of resistance fan fiction since before President Trump got elected, is actually pretty staggering. Here's a little more from CNN on Republican voters. An important
3: but, Republican voters remain loyal. And some recent polling suggests independents are perhaps growing more wary of impeachment. Lawmakers are home on a break right now, and that allows them to get a local pulse. For many House Democrats, that means testing the effectiveness of Republican impeachment attack ads.
1: Their partisan impeachment is a politically
2: motivated charade. Joe Cunningham promised to be different, but he's not. Instead of working to secure our border, fix health care, and pass a new trade deal with our neighbors that
1: creates real jobs, he's supported the partisan impeachment investigation.
3: Yep. It is fascinating for both sides here. The politics are risky for both sides here. And the thing is, we just don't know where we are today versus where we're going to be come the early nominating contest in the Democratic presidential race and then come almost a year from now November.
1: Mm -hmm. And so far, uh, Republican outside groups have spent some eight million or more on these impeachment ads, these anti-impeachment ads, and compare that to Democrats, which have only spent about three million or so. So these vulnerable house democrats have expressed concern to leadership this week ahead of the thanksgiving break saying we don't want to be playing catch-up we're worried about our re-election bid
3: you know it's an interesting though that ad that you just played is an interesting kind of uh, echo of what the democrats did two years ago in the mid in the midterms when they were the ones arguing that the president is obsessed with The border and invasion and the caravans coming up and what we should be talking about is health care and, you know, the issues that are that sort of really matter to people. And so the Republicans in this sense are turning that on its head and saying, no, 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 this time it's the Democrats who are
0: obsessed when we should be sort of moving on to other issues. It's fair game for the Republicans there. Yeah, Uh, that ad is not good for Cunningham who is one of the uh, Democrats who said that he wouldn't be with Nancy Pelosi, but he would hold Donald Trump accountable. And and now they're targeting him, and he's like, I don't know that I want to go forward with this. Uh, Here's Chris Wallace talking with Eric Swalwell, former presidential candidate, uh, about the polling.
2: Public opinion has begun to actually move against you. I want to put up a poll. Back in early October, people favored impeachment and removing the president by fifty-two percent to forty-six or plus six. Now that's turned to forty-eight percent for removal and fifty percent against or minus two. That's an eight-point swing. Against removing the president
3: while you've been making your best case. Well, I saw an ABC News poll last week that said 70% of Americans thought what the president did was wrong. We're but they didn't say re- impeach and remove. over a, a majority of people in that poll actually did uh, favor removing the president. So I'm not
0: focused on the polls. I know my colleagues aren't either. This president. Wait, 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 wait! Never trust a politician who says he's not focused on the polls. That's all they focus on. His power, his
3: great vast power, to ask a foreign government to help him cheat an election, and I don't think we should be looking at the polls to decide what we should do. I think most Americans recognize that is wrong, and there have to be consequences.
0: Yeah, when a politician says, I'm not looking at the polls, I'm looking at what's doing right. No, you're trying to reconcile what you want to do with the polls and it's, it's not working for you. Uh, Jonathan Turley talking about where the Democrats proceed. They do have a problem here.
3: It is. I mean, the Democrats have to decide if this—if they want a real or recreational impeachment. A real impeachment means calling people like Giuliani and others to appear and then compelling them to appear. You can't create the the, period, the shortest period of investigation in history for an impeachment and then impeach a president for failing to turn over documents in that period because he went to the courts. It, if that is obstruction for a president to seek judicial review in a conflict with Congress, then you could have impeached every living president particularly Barack Obama who made the same type of extreme interpretations when he refused documents of witnesses in fast and furious so you know we, we at some point adult supervision has to kick in here and we have to decide
0: are we really trying to remove this president and if so the case has to be made and they haven't. They haven't talked to McMulvany. They haven't talked to John Bolton. They haven't talked to any of these people. And you know where this is headed? It's headed to the Judiciary Committee, which will be tasked with taking the, the information from the Intelligence Committee and drafting articles of impeachment. And remember, Nancy Pelosi put all this stuff in intelligence to begin with because she did not like the farce that the Judiciary Committee had become. You had um Nadler, the chairman, and what what's that idiot? Uh Cohen from Memphis who made all the, the smart aleck remarks. Uh, you've got Doug Collins in there who runs circles around all the Democrats. He's itching for an opportunity to have a, a public impeachment hearing and, and expose the Democrats. But, you know, you got Roger Wicker, one of the senators who will be involved in this. He was on Meet the Press with Chuck Todd this weekend and discussing, you can get a hint of where the Republicans and the Senate are viewing this.
5: And and I just think the people out there don't think this, is, uh, this uh, investigation is fair. Uh, they know that only Democrat witnesses were allowed to be called, none of the witnesses- That's not true, that, they,
3: they made requests. Some of them were, were were indeed called.
5: There were some witnesses of Republican requests uh, uh, that were as called. A, as a matter of fact, here's what happened. There, there were three witnesses that Democrats asked for and Republicans asked for. Mm-hmm. Those three witnesses got called. None of the witnesses that were exclusively called by the Republicans were uh, were asked. And and you know you you asked the question about the whistleblower. Yeah. And and so um, Chairman Schiff has decided that it wouldn't be beneficial to his case. Yeah. Well, it might be beneficial if some of the Republicans were allowed to cross-examine this person. So it's a totally uh, totally uh, well, inadequate. I, I
0: <laughs> you know, Wicker's right. And, and uh he had to call out Chuck Todd on that one because yeah, what Chuck Todd was saying is that you had bipartisan witnesses. No. Uh, Roger Wickers pointed out the Republicans had three witnesses they wanted to call that the Democrats did not want. Uh, the Republicans had three people they wanted to call who the Democrats also wanted to hear from, so they got called. The ones that just the Republicans wanted to hear from did not get called by the committee. The committee called the ones the Democrats wanted to hear from that the Republicans didn't want to hear from, but they didn't call just the Republican witnesses. That is a problem when you're saying you want to conduct a fair inquiry. And when this goes to the Judiciary Committee, it doesn't appear that this is going to change, which again allows the Republicans to say this is a partisan process. To Jonathan Turley's point, is it going to be real or recreational? Uh, is it going to be a real impeachment? If so, you got to give due process rights. you got to hear from both sides, and you got to have people like Mulvaney and John Bolton testify. You can't just have the people who scratched the Democrats' ears testify, and that's what they've done. And all the calls and all the howls of impeachment come from people who just heard one side and not the other. The phone number here, 877-973-7425, 877-97-ERIC. Oh, Pete Buttigieg is continuing to have problems. I want to play this this bit. This is from Meet the Press yesterday, uh, highlighting progressive problems with Buttigieg. The issue of African-American support for Pete Buttigieg seemed to be a theme of the debate and, uh, and on Wednesday
3: night, except... It seemed as if all the candidates didn't know how to talk about it other than Buttigieg. Here's Buttigieg and Kamala Harris back to back here on this issue of Buttigieg's uh, arguably inability so far to, to woo African-American voters.
2: While well, I do not have the experience of ever having been discriminated against
3: because of the color of my skin. I do have the experience of sometimes feeling like a stranger in my own country.
2: So we're going to now say that my pain is worse than your pain? These are all injustices, but to start comparing one group's pain to the other is misguided.
3: Michael Eric Dyson, what was interesting about... Kamala Harris's criticism there post debate mm. is that she actually had an opportunity to say that right directly back at Pete Buttigieg and she backed off. Yeah. She actually, when he gave his answer and there was more to it, and, and I think at some point he even threw out the caveat going, I know I'm not going to compare struggles, but. Right. And she decided not to do it, but she did it off camera. What, is, what does that tell you? Well, first of all, she's reinforcing a point that many people have made. You can't engage in an oppression derby. The Jews, the blacks, the Italians, the, the gays. By the way, you're always going <laughs> to lose. Whatever derby, you're always going to lose. Somebody always feels oppressed. I mean, yeah. if you ain't in Kentucky, it's bad. So what's interesting is that she also had to deal with the, the 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 gauntlet that had been thrown down is that black people are more gay, I mean, more homophobic, right? So now you're thinking, if I come at him, then it reinforces the perception of black people being more
0: more homophobic. I think it's it's unfortunate. You know, it, it, it's hilarious to me. They can't talk about the issue, but they have a real issue. All of this goes back. Uh, you probably don't need reminding, but it, it's worth it for people who are new. All of this goes back to a focus group that Buttigieg's campaign itself did in South Carolina to figure out why he can't gain traction among black voters. And the overwhelming issue for black voters in South Carolina is he's gay and married. What was so interesting about the research is that these black voters in South Carolina, it was interestingly enough, it was the oldest woman in the room who said she would consider voting for him. None of the rest of me, including the millennials, wouldn't vote for him. And it had nothing to do with him, per se, being this is the fascinating part. I could have told them this. They didn't need a focus group. It had nothing to do with him being gay and everything to do with it being in your face by the media. Uh, having to see him on the campaign trail with with uh with his spouse and the like, uh, the black voters in South Carolina wanted nothing to do with that, and I could have told them that was the case. If Buttigieg was just a gay guy running for president, it wouldn't be a big deal to black voters, but it is that it has to be celebrated as a milestone marker when he is so to them so white. I mean, he is the whitest dude running for president. That bothers them tremendously that essentially to a lot of black voters... Buttigieg, if he were black and gay, would not be in the position he's in. The media would not be praising him. The media would not be glorifying his marriage. The media would not be boosting him. And there's a lot of resentment within the black community that a mayor from South Bend, Indiana, with a fraught history of race relations in his own city, can get that much positive media attention for both being gay and married and and being a millennial and a white dude running for office. And there's a level of resentment there that I think is understandable. And the Buttigieg campaign can't get around that. And I guess they've decided to shame black voters into feeling guilty about it. And that's not going to work either for him. And that's why I don't think he's going to be the Democratic nominee. He can't overcome this issue. At least the polls suggest is going to be too tough and not enough time for him to overcome the issue.